It is uh, good to be together today, is it not, to uh, worship our God together. Uh, I'm going to be doing our scripture reading for us. I know you just sat down, and we always say if you are able. So if you are able, would you please stand for our scripture reading this morning? Um, If you do not have a Bible this morning and you would like a Bible this morning, uh, I would also invite you, you can raise your hand and someone from our Frontlines team will bring you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, I'd invite you to take a Bible that we give you home with you and that can be your Bible. Or if you have a friend who doesn't have a Bible and you feel led by the Holy Spirit to give them a Bible, you can take that Bible and we will order more Bibles. Bibles are the best things to buy. They're the things we love to give away. And so we are going to be in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 this morning. This message this morning is titled, Absolute Handiwork in My Creation. This is what the word of the Lord says, and at the end I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'd simply invite you to respond, praise be to God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, a month ago, I let you know that this morning I would be addressing the topic of abortion. I don't know when the last time you were in a public place where this was a conversation. And so this is what we are going to be talking about this morning. Uh, A couple of comments that I want to make before we dig into this this morning. One, as I said, there's probably not a lot of places where you are having these conversations. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that this message would be maybe a starting point for you within your missional communities or or communities in general to have some conversations. Um, I also want to say right off the bat that there is grace upon grace if you have had an abortion. It is estimated that one in three Canadian women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And so what that means is that in this room, you maybe have had that experience. And what it absolutely means is that all of us will know somebody in our lives who have had one, maybe even a second. And I, as a man, have absolutely no idea what it was like in your particular situation where maybe you're being pressured by a sexual partner, a healthcare provider, family, friends, maybe even you were fearful of the church community that you grew up in and the particular shame that you would feel if you were to come out and tell people that you were pregnant. And so I just want to initially begin with that. There is grace upon grace. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus came to this earth, brothers and sisters, to live the life that we could not live. He was perfect in our place, and he died the death that we should die and came back to life in order to redeem, to restore, and offer redemption and forgiveness for everything. 
I want to remind us as we start of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Romans 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews 4, verse 16, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. These verses are a reminder. It's a good news message to those of us who have sin, which is every single one of us. And in response to these verses, we as the church must be a place that cares for those who have had the lived experience of an abortion, who can offer a shoulder to cry on, to provide grief support and abundant grace, living in word and in deed the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has come, praise him, to rescue and renew creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. May we be a people who preach this news in word, but live it extravagantly and generously indeed. Before I continue, let's take a moment to pause, to breathe. I'd invite you to invite God's spirit to speak. Check in mind, soul, body, and spirit, and then we'll dig in a little bit more. Jesus, we do invite you by your spirit to do a work in our hearts today, our hearts being our executive centers, the place in us that leads us to do the things that we do, motivates us in particular ways. Would your spirit speak to us and meet us there? And I pray that your spirit would lavish us in the love of God. that you would invite us to deep, meaningful life that you, Jesus, promise in the scriptures to those who follow you, abundance of life. And so we want to trust you this morning, and so we lay this all before you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the verses that I read for us from Psalm 139 are likely one of the most well-known texts, and they're oftentimes verses that are quoted any time the topic of abortion comes up, at least from a Christian perspective, as they speak to the sanctity of human life, resulting in what Christians have historically believed in the protections of the unborn child. But Scripture, beyond Psalm 139, speaks to the legitimacy of and the sanctity and value of the unborn human life. And so what I want to begin with some other examples in the scriptures of this. We have Sarah regarding the birth of Isaac in Genesis 17, verses 15 to 16. In chapter 22 of Genesis, verses 1 to 2, we have Hannah regarding the birth of Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, verses 11 to 12, verses 17 to 18, and verse 20. We have Samson, who's one of the judges, in reference to his birth, Judges 13, verses 3 to 5. We have the prophet Jeremiah, who in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 to 5, says this, Now the word of the Lord came to 
me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We then have the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 49 verses 1 to 5 says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. We then have Elizabeth in reference to John the Baptist, Luke 1, verses 15 to 17. We then have Luke 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is the greeting about Jesus. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is in reference, once again, to a pre-born John the Baptist rejoicing at the arrival of a pre-born Jesus from the womb. We then have the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, verses 20 to 21, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So as you can see, these are scriptural examples, scriptural evidence of God being miraculously involved in the unborn human life. But where does this begin? Why are these verses here? And these verses are here to point out for us that the unborn life ultimately matters to God because human beings are made in the image of God. As scholars and theologians put it, we bear the imago Dei, which is the basis for all human rights and all of human value. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, we read, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is God speaking. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. We can then go to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17, where the global church becomes God's temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so based upon these texts, as well as others, Christians have historically placed a sacred value on children, born and unborn. You maybe don't know this, but in the ancient world, children were seen as commodities for family gain, and nothing more than property to be disposed of if they were unwanted. Christians, the early Christians, stood against these ideas, claiming that every human being is made in the image of God and formed in the womb according to his design. In the Old Testament, God's people were condemned by God when they treated their children like their pagan neighbors. And then in the New Testament, children are seen as full participants in God's family, the church. Jesus uh, illustrates this and provides a life example. Matthew 18, 1 to 2 and verse 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
the early church, as I said, stood up and protected, but they also followed this example and placed a distinct theological value on children. The didact, which is also known as the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations from the first or second century, stated this, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill a newborn. The early Christian writer Tertullian in AD 197, while responding to claims that Christians sacrificed babies, wrote this, In our case, murder being once for all forbidden, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. Now this teaching did not lead to judgment by the church, but to deep compassion. As disfigured children from failed abortions were adopted and cared for by followers of Jesus. Children given to what is known as exposure or infanticide were cared for and adopted by Christians and taken into their care. Orphanages sprung up, often run and funded by Christians to care for the unwanted children in the Greco-Roman world. Christians did not just believe that life mattered, they showed it with their actions in category-defying ways that have echoed through the centuries down to you and to me. So to summarize what I have said so far, the Christian movement has historically and unanimously unanimously held that human beings are made in the image of God and life begins in the womb and at conception. And so as a result, Christians have sought to protect, value, care for, and provide for human life at every single stage. And this must be our conviction at every single stage. Now that said... Many would like to say that opposition to abortion is purely a religious argument rather than any ethical, moral, or scientific issue. And so what I want to do is to dig into that a little bit more specifically today. Is this in fact true? Is the anti-abortion movement purely sourced by religious individuals? To begin, I want to answer the question, what exactly is abortion? Two definitions for us. One, it's the termination of a pregnancy, whether spontaneous or induced. Or secondly, it's induced termination of pregnancy involving destruction of the embryo or fetus. Now, I want to note here that there are a plethora of definitions, both presently and historically, based on various philosophical and moral views, and also depending on where you are in the world. Some specify and define abortion in connection to what they term as the viability of the fetus, something that we'll dig into a little bit more shortly, and in cases of miscarriage or danger to the health of the mother. That said, let's look at the Canadian definition. This is how Canada defines abortion. Abortion is the premature ending of a pregnancy. Inducing an abortion was a crime in Canada until 1988, when the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the law as unconstitutional. And since then, abortion has been legal at any stage in a woman's pregnancy and for any reason. Abortion is publicly funded in Canada as a medical procedure under the Canadian Health Act. A couple of things to note about this Canadian definitions and also definitions more broadly. Intentionally, they speak to the ending of a pregnancy rather than to the ending of a life. Secondly, as it relates to Canada, there are only three nations in the world that permit full-term abortions. China, North Korea, and Canada. 
And of them, Canada is the only nation on earth with absolutely no criminal restrictions on abortion. You might find it fascinating then that when America's Supreme Court reversed the decision on Roe v. Wade, and when it was leaked, Canada immediately announced expanded access to abortion services. When America's announcement was made, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it horrific. As you experience, having this conversation in our political climate seems almost impossible in some ways as a result. Now, while these are the definitions and realities of abortion within Canada, let's talk a little bit about abortion access within our nation. Now, while abortions within our nation after 20 weeks are statistically very rare, they account for less than 2.5% of all abortions, there are only three service locations in Canada that offer abortion up to 23 weeks and six days. One's in British Columbia, one's in southern Ontario, and one is in Quebec. No providers in Canada offer abortion beyond 23 weeks and six days. And so Canadians wanting an abortion past 24 weeks currently have to travel to the United States. This does not account for some hospital abortions in, in cases of complications. You might be interested to know that the Guinness World Records, the most premature baby to survive is Curtis Zykeith Means in the USA who was born to Michelle Butler on the 5th of July, 2020 at the University of Alabama at Birmingham Hospital in Alabama, USA at the gestational age of 21 weeks, one day, or 148 days, making him 132 days premature. Some official numbers on abortion in Canada. This is just from 2020. Within 2020, there was an estimated 74,605 abortions. Now, you might be interested to know that the total numbers of abortions each year are decreasing and have been since 2015. Roughly 50% of these abortions are among women aged 18 to 29, meaning by and large, the other 50% happen afterwards. Think some women who've already had children and maybe are not in a position of they believing they don't want another one. 9,797, this is again 2020, happened after 12 weeks. 960 abortions, or 1.29% of those total, happened after 21 weeks in 2020. This means that in 2020, 64,757 abortions estimated, or 86.8, were done by 12 weeks of pregnancy. Just for comparison purposes, I am not in any way trying to make a political statement. But in 2020, 14,642 people died of COVID in Canada. And to date, just over 43,000 people total have died of COVID in Canada. I recognize that this is all very, very heavy. And so let's just take a moment to breathe. I have more information on um, how abortion is primarily done. There's medical abortion, uh, abortion pill, you may be familiar with, and then there are surgical abortion means. I'm sure that uh, on your own time, you can research some more of that. I will not explore that this morning. That said, what I want to spend some time now is considering some of the arguments made by those who advocate for abortion, 
what I would term as some common misconceptions. I want you to know that I'm leaning heavily on the writing of Melissa Moschella. She wrote an article recently in the public discourse called The Ethics of Abortion, Clarifying Misconceptions. I'm also planning to only quote women during this portion of my message. Some common arguments for abortion. First one is this, we just don't know when life begins. We don't know when life begins. Now there was a study done in 2018 and there was 5,502 academic biologists who were invited to participate in this study. And the study asked these academic biologists, when does life begin? Do you agree with a human's life begins at fertilization? 95% of these academic biologists from over 1,000 academic institutions agreed with the statement, a human's life begins at fertilization. Now, the participants were separated into 60 groups, and each statement was affirmed by each of these consensuses of each group, including biologists that were very pro-choice, very pro-life, very liberal, very conservative, strong Democrats, and strong Republicans, speaking of an American side. Melissa Moschella, in her article, writes this, Standard biology texts affirm that human life begins at fertilization when sperm and egg fuse. And the underlying science makes it clear that the fusion of sperm and egg results in a new human being that is genetically and functionally distinct from the mother with all of the internal resources necessary to direct himself or herself to maturity. Embryos and fetuses are not potential life, but nascent human beings with potential to to mature into adults. So we don't know when life begins. According to this study, we can say 95% certainty there's an agreement upon this academic community that it begins at the point of fertilization. But what some will argue within this community, the second point, is that the unborn child is not a person. The unborn child is not a person. Now, this argument is very common amongst those who agree that human life begins at fertilization. This argument states that the unborn, while human, are not persons with full moral status and moral rights because the unborn lack qualities like self-awareness and rationality that they believe to be the basis of our special moral status and therefore accompanying rights. Now, some challenges to this view If this view is true, then this means that some infants, toddlers, and those with severe cognitive disabilities, as well as other human beings after birth, would also not count as persons with moral status or rights. This view, as some willingly support, justifies not only abortion, but infanticide and involuntary euthanasia for those with severe mental and physical disabilities. It also gets into the conversation around viability or stages of development, which I personally view as a slippery slope if you do not believe that human life begins at conception. Because where do you ultimately draw the line? Certainly, the born child is not viable to survive on their own without care, without nutrition, without the proper environment. As a result, it is more coherent to recognize that all human beings are persons because all humanity, human beings possess a rational nature even if they cannot manifest it due to immaturity or to illness. 
Once again, Melissa Moschella, from the very beginning of their lives, all humans possess the genetic and epigenetic primordia of a brain and other biological support structures necessary for the exercise of rational capacities. Even before those capacities can manifest themselves, they are already present in root form, just as these capacities remain present when a person is asleep or comatose. Every human, regardless of age, illness, or disability, possesses a rational nature and is therefore a person with innate dignity whose basic rights deserve protection. Quoting Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, The Secular Creed, she writes, We're all human beings by virtue of our species, but to be human, says this argument, to be a human person, someone with human rights, we must have certain capacities. The problem is, when people start identifying those capacities, they realize that newborn infants don't have them either. One of the leading philosophers to argue for the being-person distinction is Princeton professor Peter Singer. And in Singer's view, a week-old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on exceed that of a human baby a week or a month old. Therefore, Singer concludes that the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. To translate this into practical terms, writes McLaughlin, eating bacon might be more immoral than infanticide. And following this line of reasoning, there are many individuals who've changed to a pro-life view due to the alternative inconsistencies of this one. Thirdly, this is the one you probably hear more than anyone else. Abortion is about a woman's right to do what she wants with her own body, also coined as my body, my choice. So even those who agree that human life begins at conception will hold this view because they believe a woman should not be forced to carry a child. In Canada's Supreme Court ruling, this was the primary justification made. By Chief Justice Brian Dixon, he said this, forcing a woman by threat of criminal sanction to carry a fetus to term unless she meets certain criteria unrelated to her own priorities and aspirations is a profound interference with a woman's body and thus a violation of her security of the person. Now, some challenges to this view, once again, spoken from a man. But here's the first one. The unborn child is a distinct human being not part of the woman's body. Otherwise, we would need to say that a woman has four legs, four arms, and two hearts beating at different speeds. The unborn child has a unique genetic code, different from the mother's and different from the father's. And what they do is they direct their own development. While the mother's body certainly provides a suitable environment and nutrition, these are things that every single human being is at every stage of their lives. Secondly, the primary effect is not a woman's body, but on the body of the unborn child. If the unborn child really is a person with basic rights, then it's hard to see how taking the life of that child to avoid burdens or inconveniences can be justified any more than taking the life of an infant. In this case, we see that this is not purely a religious argument, but one about ethics and human rights. Thirdly, there are always legal and moral limits upon your and my bodily autonomy. Your right to smoke is eliminated by someone else's right to not want you to smoke in their presence. There are limits on your drug use, punching someone, and with whom and when you have sex. 
Fourthly, early feminists understood voluntary motherhood not, a, not as a right to abortion, but as the right of a woman, hear this, even within marriage to refuse to have sex. Now, you would probably bring up in this case rape, which account for less than 1% of all abortion. Women, therefore, have unlimited rights to who they have sex with or their reproductive choice prior to the creation of a child, a distinct human being. As I was listening to um, and doing some research on this, someone pointed out that tragically, the most nurturing relationship on the planet, which you could argue is the relationship of a mother and child, has become an argument about opposition and a fight over rights. Fourthly, abortion is necessary for women's equality. This is another argument made. Those who support this view believe that restrictions on abortion will undo all political, social, and economic gains that women have made over the past century. And again, some challenges to this view. The gains of women began long before access to abortion was granted and therefore are not dependent upon it. This is also from Melissa Michella. Many early feminists did not believe abortion was necessary or helpful to their cause. One female author even stated that abortion is the ultimate exploitation of women and that it fosters a cultural view that the wombless male body is normative, which then devalues the important work of caring for children and tells women that in order to succeed professionally, socially, and educationally, they have to make their bodies more like men through birth control and abortion. True equality would be to value and support women's unique capacity to bear children rather than requiring women to become like men in order to compete. For more on this perspective in particular, I'd highly encourage the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. It is epic and you'll truly enjoy it. Fifth, this is another one that you'll commonly see, likely through social media and other places. Abortion is a health issue, or abortion is health care. And many argue that abortion is a private health care decision. But again, some challenges with this particular view is that healing and health, except in cases where a woman's life is threatened, are not the focuses or point of abortion. Michelle writes, pregnancy is not a disease. Women bodies are designed to reproduce. Pregnancy is a sign of health, not an illness that needs cured. This understanding has therefore distorted the practice of med medicine to the detriment of women, ignoring the importance of the menstrual cycle. According to data out of Florida, 95% of abortions involve a healthy mother and a healthy child. Another suggestion from those who advocate for abortion is abortion, though not ideal, is a better alternative. And there are a number of things that people will list off in this category, and they include the child being unwanted, young parents or moms, there's increased financial strain on family and society, there will be an increase in poverty, there are the challenges of adoption and uh, connecting with an adoptive parent, Others, I remember sitting with one of my neighbors and he talked about fully recognizing the reality around the biology of, a, of fertilization. And he said, well, what are we going to do with all of those extra humans on the planet? And the argument there is population control. But some challenges, once again, with this view, no hardship or challenge, no matter how severe, can ever justify taking someone's life. 
No hardship or challenge, no matter how severe, can ever justify taking someone's life. This is an American reality, but Margaret Sanger, founder of, founder of Planned Parenthood, advocated for birth control and abortion by saying that less fit people should be sterilized, not permitted to conceive, and encouraged to abort if they become pregnant. This was pushed on poorer communities because of the economic weight of these children. And who do you think in the United States this disproportionately targeted? Black babies. And currently in the U.S., black babies are three times more likely to be aborted than white. Another challenge to this view is that you're making a premature decision for another human being. Would the child, if they were born and lived, ultimately want this for themselves? And economically speaking, if we're going to talk about economics, we need more babies for future economic growth. A society's population growth has enormous implications for its future economic viability. Seventh argument that I will simply touch on this morning is that abortion is just physical. You may be shocked to find out that a few years ago, and even now, there are a whole bunch of memes going across the internet that um, some pro-life people had obviously clashed with those They were pro-choice, and they had signs that say, I will adopt your baby, and now I will adopt your baby has become a meme all across the internet. But there was a hashtag a number of years ago that was hashtag shout your abortion, whose creator had filmed themselves going into the hospital for an abortion, ultimately desiring to remove any stigma to abortion and make it and present the view that it's absolutely pain-free. Some challenges with this view is that there's medical complications do happen in the case of legal abortions. Some have even suggested that the percentages may even be no different from when access was restricted. But obviously, true numbers are hard to find out. There are also the emotional and mental side effects that someone must experience, and they then cannot be minimized. Once again, Militia Michelle, abortion might seem like the easy way out, but as experts who have offered post-abortion counseling to thousands of women attest, and as studies show, post-abortion trauma is real and has lasting effects. It's interesting to consider as well that miscarriage is also an interesting consideration. Many women experience genuine pain and grief when a wanted pregnancy ends in miscarriage. Is wanted or wanting the primary difference between an emotionless, pain-free abortion and then a miscarriage? And once again, Brothers and sisters, this is heavy, and certainly there are difficult situations that are hard to unpack. Rebecca McLaughlin in her books comments on this. My niece was born prematurely because her mother had preeclampsia. To carry her baby to term would have killed my sister-in-law, but she carried my niece for as long as possible with the hope that she'd survive. Both of their lives mattered, and thank God both survived. I have no wish to oversimplify. There will be times when tragedy is inevitable and terrible choices must be made. But she writes this, If Christianity is true, then both mother and baby matter. Hear what she writes here, powerful. And if Christianity is true, the central plank of women's rights is Mary's unborn child who grew up to be a man who valued us so much that he died on a Roman cross so that we could live. This line, truly this baby conceived out of wedlock and born into poverty 
changed everything for women. Blessed be the fruit. Jesus, John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. With that in mind, I'd invite you to close your eyes and just hear Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 again over the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet... There was none of them. Why did Jesus come? John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have life abundantly. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came for life and that we would experience it abundantly. Some practical considerations as we wrap up and then we'll be transitioning to communion. Some practical considerations. First is this, consequence-less sex. Sex without consequences. God is the Lord of all creation and that includes what happens with our bodies. And according to the scriptures, our bodies therefore belong to God, not ourselves. And our thinking about our bodies should not be framed around cultural rights, but biblical responsibility to honor God with the bodies that he has given us. And what this does is it impacts how we view discipleship to Jesus when we think about sexuality, the creation of life, family, and the kind of world that honors God. You've maybe heard of the Babylon Bee. It's a satirical website, and they released a video called Try This, One Crazy Trick to Avoid Unwanted Pregnancies. And the tagline was, don't have sex. We, as followers of Jesus and within the Christian community, should talk about sex and talk about God's design for sexuality. We need to talk about the fact that like abortion is not just physical, sex is also not just physical. And we have the opportunity to honor God with our bodies. Second consideration, we live in a culture where the idol, with the idol of the autonomous self and that I am free to do whatever I want. I create my own truth, reject truth or morality from the outside of me. Salvation and my own personal freedom are found within in his incredible book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman writes this, writes this, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. All these things play into the legitimizing and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such term. They capture, as one might say, the spirit of the age. 
Third practical consideration, and this is so critical, the church must be a safe place for women to share about pregnancy and where children are welcome and children are celebrated. Children, as I've said before, are not the future of the church. They are the church now. But the first point I make there is it must be a safe place for women. The church, our church, must be a place of hope and healing for the weary women of our world, weary of proving their worth, weary of shame for their mistakes, weary of wondering if there is truly a safe place for them to flourish in the world. And Jesus created space like that, and we too must do the same thing. It may come as no surprise that women from religious backgrounds are a Enough of a portion, I heard a stat in the U.S., it was 30% of abortions in the United States are those from religious backgrounds because of their fear of coming out to share about their pregnancy in their churches. Rebecca McLaughlin about the early church again. In the early 4th century, Constantine passed laws protecting women from unwarranted divorce and offering provisions for children born into poverty. If any parent should report that he has offspring which on account of poverty he is not able to rear, there shall be no delay in issuing food and clothing. Historian John Dixon notes that Constantine used churches as the welfare distribution centers for this particular program. So safe place for women. Also, children must be considered welcome. Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Do we talk about celebrating our children or do we talk about our children if they are a preventative to our personal happiness? Celebrated, welcome, blessed. Another consideration, we must live lives of sacrifice over convenience. And this is for all, every single one of us at every single stage. Then Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Another consideration, sanctity and sacredness of life, period. The church has had a consistent vision of the sacredness of life, but it has at times failed to live up to that vision in a holistic manner moralized where it should have, empathized, sermonized where it should have sacrificed, in the words of John Tyson. The church is at its best when it cares about life, not just birth. And we need to seek to support women caught in painful situations and to show love and action. And then a final consideration. We must educate ourselves. Carl Truman, again, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is to not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Can I read that again? The task of the Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. I am tired of Christians complaining 
about things. Do something. Get involved. Read. Learn. Support somebody. Live an inconvenient life for the sake of others because Christ did it for you and for me. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. We got to stop sitting back and not doing anything about this and care for people and love people well. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. May we do this, brothers and sisters. This cup represents the blood of Christ which was shed for you and for me and his body which was broken for you and for me. This cup represents an opportunity for us to reflect upon our lives, to recognize where we have fallen short, to recognize our sin. As Paul says, I continue to do the things that I do not want to do. I continue to do the things that I hate. If you do not have a communion cup, maybe our front lines team can pass one out. Brothers and sisters, this cup, ultimately, it represents life. It represents eternal life. That Jesus has given to you and to me as a gift, not as a reward of our obedience, but as a gift. You and I, if we are reflecting with the conviction of the Spirit, recognize when we come to communion that I do not deserve what this represents. It's a gift of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's rescuing and renewing creation. And then the invitation of communion is to go out into the world and live a life changed by the gospel, motivated by the gospel. As Paul says, I am motivated by the gospel because it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is power. And may it change us. May we not whine, but may we act May we learn and respond appropriately in love in this world. And may people begin to look and see us as the church, as a people who stand for life, period, and provide for those who are struggling to provide for themselves and then some. Let us take first the wafer, representative once again of Christ's broken body for you and for me. And now Jesus shed blood for you and for me. Jesus, I came, I thank you that you came to give life. And not just the type of life that just seeks to get by, that seeks not to be inconvenienced. You invite us to give everything.
God, would you make us aware of the areas in our life where we're holding back? Of where we are demanding, in some ancient words, but demanding to hold onto the lordship over areas of our life that we need to surrender over to the true Lord and King. God, I pray that you would give us as a church the vision for how to live out this message. God, we confess that we have not done this well. God, we've whined at times, we've complained. Would we not do this? Would we respond appropriately as we lean upon your spirit, as we listen? God, would we not take this topic so lightly? Would we not try to avoid it where we need to speak? And would you give us wisdom and how to respond in the days ahead? God, we live in a nation where it just seems like this topic, you can't even talk about it. So help us. Empower us, Jesus. And would we be obedient ultimately and surrender to you completely. Would you give us a vision for how we can care for the orphan in our city? Maybe it's through foster care, maybe it's adoption, Lord Jesus. Would the future church say of us that we helped out Amen.